Psalm 24 is where we are headed this morning. Now, there are many different ways to think about and imagine our life of faith. Some of us have been told that we need to live for God. We need to live for God, right? There are certain things that God has for us to do, ways that God wants us to live, and there are also things God does not want us to do and ways that he does not want us to live. And so in obedience, we must live our lives for God. And there's a wonderful simplicity about this, right? In many ways, living for God is kind of the training wheels of faith. We live for God. But this kind of living can easily begin to devolve after a while into a kind of legalism of shoulds and shouldn'ts, of do's and don'ts, giving way to a kind of spiritual anxiety with the constant question, am I doing enough for God? That can often then transform into a kind of judgment towards others. You aren't doing enough for God, right? We've probably seen and experienced this to some degree. But there's another, perhaps more free way uh, to think about faith, and that is living to God. Living to God, right? Rather than just doing things for God, and reluctant obedience, we live life to God in an, in an overflow of praise. All of life is transformed into worship as we live to God. And all of our heart, our, our, our hope begins to move toward Him as we hope in Him. But, but again, after a while, this too can begin to devolve into a kind of escapism where we cease to really be here because our whole focus becomes being, you know, getting to heaven someday as we live our lives to God. Faith becomes about going to someplace else and leaving this place behind. And if we're not careful, our desire to live to God can become a disdain toward the people and the places around us. So what are we to do? Well, there is another way to think about our faith that I believe is more freeing while also more challenging and transforming than these other ways. Beyond living for God or living to God, there is living with God. Living with God. And, and this way of living out our faith encompasses the others, but it actually goes much deeper. You see, when, when we live with God, we still do things for God, but we don't do them out of our own prideful power because God is with us, guiding us and empowering us along the way. When we live with God, yes, we still orient ourselves toward God. We do live to God, but not in a way that turns us away from the world around us. Because God is here with us in the midst of the world where we live. You see, living life with God 
is the very heart of our faith. Living life with God is the very heart of our faith, which is why, I think, at the center of our Bibles, we have this collection of songs and prayers that are entirely about life with God. This is what the book of Psalms is. It's one of the best ways for us to learn how to live this with God kind of faith. Because whether joy or sorrow, whether celebration or trial, the Psalms take everything to God. They let every experience become an invitation to live more deeply with God. So this summer, we're returning to where we've left off last year, continuing our way through the Psalms. We've done this the last few summers. Uh, And so we're picking up with Psalm 24, where we left off. And so let's read it together. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of these psalms, for the prayers and songs that you have given to us to teach us how to live life with you. God, I pray as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 24. This psalm uh, is essentially about being with God. It's a psalm about being with God. Verse 3, it asks the question, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? To be with God, right? And then in verse 7, it calls for the gates to be opened so that this king of glory may come in to be with his people. It's all about being with God. 
But, but I love how this psalm begins. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. With this opening, the psalmist declares that being with God begins right here. Being with God begins right here. We don't need to escape the earth to enter the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is right here in our midst. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything around us is meant to draw us nearer to God. All of creation is, is beckoning us, come closer, come see God. This is one of the things that the Psalms do so well. You see, everything that we experience is an opportunity to encounter God. Everything we experience is this opportunity to encounter God. The psalmist looks at the world around and famously says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Elsewhere, the psalmist says things like, God is my rock. God is my shade. God is my shelter. Every ordinary thing is transformed into an opportunity to see and sense God. Living with God begins right here. This is what the Psalms show us. And so I wonder, what are the ordinary things in your life that you could easily breeze past, that you could easily look over. Ordinary things that might just reveal God to you. Did you sleep in a bed last night? The Lord is my bed that I rest upon, my cover that spreads over me. I bet the psalmist would write something like that these days. Did any of you enjoy a cup of coffee this morning? A few of you? Or tea, if that's your preference, right? God is my morning cup, bringing warmth and energy for the day. The psalmist might write something like that today. Have you felt the heat this weekend? No? Uh, then, like the psalmist, we could say, God is my shade. I take refuge in the shadow of his wings, right? God is a cool place in the midst of exhausting heat. Every experience that we have is an opportunity to encounter God. Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world is and all who live in it. Being with God begins right here, right where we are. But the psalmist is not naive about the challenges that we may face. Uh, the, you know, seeing God in all things is not about looking through rose-colored glasses and just being sort of a, a divine optimist of some sort. Verse 2 continues. 
The earth is the Lord's, yes. And then he goes on to say, for he founded it on the seas, established it on the waters. In the ancient world, the seas and the waters were primarily perceived as these chaotic forces, really of, of danger and, and evil and that sort of thing. You, you kind of stayed away from the water if you had any sense about you. The waters are dangerous. They're chaotic. But the psalmist remembers the story of creation and how out of the swirling, chaotic, churning waters, God spoke and created a stable foundation of land to live on. So even with the seas and the waters swirling around us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. For he founded it on the seas, established it on the waters. God is is bigger than those chaotic things that churn. Even the chaos that we live in is an opportunity to encounter God more deeply. The psalmist sees everything as an opportunity to encounter God more deeply. Being with God begins right here where we are. But it does not leave us here. The author and and pastor and scholar Eugene Peterson writes about this psalm, the joyful confidence imparted to us by a good creation is matched by an immense responsibility to live as loved creatures. A good creation calls us to live as those who are loved by our Creator. If creation is calling us, beckoning us to live with God, then we must become the kind of people who are marked by the life of God. So the psalm asks this question, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? What kind of traits are apparent in someone who has lived with God? And the psalmist answers the question, well, it's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. This description in verse 4 can be summed up in in a single word, integrity. Integrity. A person with integrity is the kind of person the psalmist is describing. And this word integrity is kind of abstract uh, and such, but it, it really does pack quite a punch. The word integrity has a lot of layers to it. Most of the time when we think of integrity, we think of someone who's trustworthy. That's a good way of thinking about it. But but it goes deeper than that. So the word integrity comes from the root word integer. Now, do any of you remember math class learning the word integer? What does that mean? What is it? Right? It's a number. Specifically, an integer is a whole number as opposed to a fraction or a decimal. And so to have integrity is to be whole. Integrity means wholeness. 
Uh, there's no deception, there's no duplicity, there's no compartmentalization, there's no, you know, fractioned people. Having integrity means being whole. And this is the picture that the psalmist is painting with his description, clean hands and a pure heart. See, clean hands has to do with our external actions. And a pure heart has to do with internal motivations. The kind of person being described here in Psalm 24 has a purity of both, hands and heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. There's no division between action and intention. Most of us have probably been taught to focus more on our external actions. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. But did you know that it's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons? You can do all the right things, but not have a pure heart. Jesus often pointed out how the Pharisees loved to brag about their clean hands. And yet, they had such impure hearts and motives. And we can be the very same way. But as we live life with God, we are increasingly drawn to reflect upon the state of our hearts. What are my motivations here? Not just what is the right thing to do, but but why do I want to do this thing? Living life with God is not merely about keeping our hands clean, but about having our hearts transformed and made pure by God's love. There's a a book I started reading recently in which the author gave one of the simplest and yet most challenging definitions of sin that I've come across. Because we often think about sin as wrong action, right? Uh, As dirty hands. But this author cut right to the heart and says very simply, sin is a failure to love. That's what sin is. Sin is very simply a failure to love. Do you see how that goes beyond external actions and and digs down into the heart of things? A person of integrity has clean hands and a pure heart. Their actions and intentions are not divided or not at odds with one another, but they are whole. They do the right things for the right reasons. And so the psalmist describes this and then goes on to restate it in the negative, right? Uh, This person does have clean hands and a pure heart, but does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God, as the NIV puts it. And the NIV, it's a fair interpretation, but I think this is a moment where the more literal rendering that might be in some of your Bibles is actually very helpful. Uh, A more literal way of saying is someone who does not lift up their soul to what is worthless or swear falsely. 
someone who does not lift up their soul to what is worthless or swear falsely. In, in its original context, that may have very well been referring to idol worship and false gods. But this more literal rendering speaks, I think, much more directly to our current context, to the world that, that we live in. A person of integrity does not swear falsely, is not deceitful. They don't say one thing and mean another. In the same way, a person of integrity does not lift up their soul to worthless things. And I think if we're honest, we would probably admit that a good bit of our life is devoted to some things that may not be worth that much in the scheme of things. That much of our life, we are worried about things that don't really matter. We argue about things that are inconsequential. We waste our time in pursuit of comfort and ease. We lift up our souls to a lot of more or less worthless things. But integrity calls us to lift up our souls only to the one who is worthy. Anything else might as well be an idol or false god. Our world is no less filled with idols and false gods than the ancient one. It's just that we call them things like entertainment or politics or comfort or wealth, you name it. There are plenty of things that we devote ourselves to, that we lift up our souls to, that are not god and so the psalmist has described the kind of person who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and goes on to say in verse 5 that this person will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. And that's good news, but as this description calls us into self-reflection as we've already been reflecting a bit, it becomes really clear that this, this description, clean hands, pure heart, on and on, uh, does not describe us. We don't have clean hands. We don't have pure hearts. There are plenty of worthless things that we have turned to. There are plenty of ways that we have acted deceitfully. The psalm calls us to reflect on that. Oh, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Not me. What are we to do? Right? The, the only way that, that we can really enter into this is to, to pray for and, and trust in the mercy of God. We need the mercy of God to enter into this. And I actually think that's where the psalmist goes. In verse 6, the psalmist writes, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Who seek your face, God of Jacob. Why does the psalmist say this? 
I wonder if this might be a plea for mercy. Lord, have mercy. Do you, you guys remember Jacob? Throughout the story, you know, Genesis 25 to 30-something, you know, we have the story of Jacob. Jacob was a pretty deceitful guy, right? I mean, it says right out of the, the womb, he, you know, Esau was born and, and Jacob came, you know, holding onto his foot, right? Pull, pulling his leg. It's the same sort of phrase that we have, right? He, he was a trickster. Right from birth, he was a trickster. Uh, and, and throughout his life, he constantly found ways to, to kind of climb the ladder and trick people around him. You know, the first time his, his brother Esau is coming in from his hunt out there, uh, and he's famished and exhausted and tired, and Jacob's sitting there as this nice pot of stew boiling or something like that. And Esau is, is hungry, and, and so he says, oh, can I have some of that? And so Jacob, the, the trickster, says, sure, if you'll sell me your birthright. You know, as the oldest one, Esau would have had a, a, a right to a little bit more of the inheritance. But he was hungry, and so he, he gave in, and Jacob tricked him out of his birthright. He got that from him, right? That's one of the stories of Jacob's trickster nature. Another one uh, is, is much more deceiving. He, with the help of his mother, ends up tricking his, his dad. Later on in life, it's time for Isaac to bless his eldest son, Esau, and give him the blessing that, that he is owed as, as the eldest. But Jacob dresses up like Esau, even, even covers himself with hair and fur because his brother was a hairy guy. And he goes in and, well, he tricks his dad. He deceives his dad. And he makes off with his older brother's blessing, as well as his birthright. Right? Jacob's a trickster. He does not have clean hands. He does not have a pure heart. And yet, whenever Esau finds out about this, he, Jacob's in trouble. And so Jacob runs for it. And as he is running for it, he arrives at a place where he rests for the night, and then someone comes across his path, and they begin to wrestle one another. And, and he begins to wrestle this stranger who has come across his path, and that strange, you know, he says, give me a blessing, right? Once again, trying to trick the, the person that he's with. Give me a blessing. And Finally, you know, their wrestling match comes to an end. He gets a blessing, um, and he says, who are you? Uh, and he says, you know, you, you have seen the face of God. And so Jacob calls that place Peniel, which means the face of God. And so Jacob, the one with dirty hands and an impure heart, has come to this place where he has seen God face to face. And what does the psalmist say in verse 6? Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. God of Jacob. It's as if the psalmist is saying, we don't have clean hands and pure hearts, but you are the God of Jacob. You're a God who, who has mercy on those with unclean hands in impure hearts. You're the God who moves toward those who've been deceitful. 
Jacob wrestled you so he could see your face, and we're going to do the same. Lord, bless us even though we are unclean. God, bless us even though we've been deceitful. Lord, have mercy. It's as if that is what the psalmist is it's reminding God that, hey, you had mercy on Jacob. Have mercy on us as well. And right as the psalmist says that, the psalm takes a turn. And suddenly, with this cry for mercy, there's this shift. No longer are we trying to ascend the Lord's mountain. Suddenly, it's the Lord who's coming to enter our city. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Suddenly it shifts and it looks to, hey, it's not us striving up this mountain. It's actually God coming to meet us. Knocking on the door. Will you open the gates? Now, in the psalm's original context, uh, this very likely would have been sung or chanted as the, the people came in to Jerusalem uh, up the hill with the, the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of God's presence. Uh, and so, you know, in Second in Samuel, you have a story of, of David who's just won this great battle uh, and, you know, praises the Lord for that. And they begin to march into Jerusalem. Uh, and David is, is dancing in front of the ark as they're heading in and they're celebrating God. This would be a great psalm to sing at that time, right? They, they're marching with the, the presence of God, the ark, going up this hill, entering into the city. You could easily hear them saying, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. We're, we're carrying the king of glory here on this ark. And who is this king of glory? Well, he is strong and mighty, mighty in battle. We've just had this victorious battle. We're coming into the city. The king is coming. And that king is not David. It's the Lord. Right? That's the original context of this. It's a song of celebration as the people re-enter and celebrate that God has given them victory. But through the ages, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, have come to sing this psalm, it's taken on some deeper meanings. Because Jesus is that king who is victorious over battle. Jesus is that king who's victorious over sin, victorious over death. He is the one who comes knocking on the door. Let me come in. Let me enter this city. He is the one with clean hands and a pure heart. He is the one who is not deceitful, who never worshipped what was false. He is the victorious one who comes to enter our world, to live among us, to declare the mercy of God when we needed it most. I think this is what this psalm means for us. 
Historically, there are a couple of ways this song has been sung. Uh, sometimes uh, it has been sung uh, at, the, at the time whenever people are remembering the story of Jesus ascending into heaven after the victory over death. And so Jesus ascends to heaven and the people sing, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. But another way that this song has been historically sung is that day that we're all waiting for. The day when Christ returns to make all things new. To finally cleanse the world of all sin and wrong, of death and pain. That day when Jesus will come, will we say, lift your heads, you gates. Let this King of glory come in. We want life to be lived with God. That's the invitation of this psalm. You see, as we read Psalm 24, we do not come to the mountain of the Lord with clean hands and pure hearts. But Jesus has invited us to come to the table of the Lord, to be cleansed, to be made pure. God, in his mercy, has come to dwell with us. So may we be a people who live with God in the mercy of God and carry that wherever we go. Amen.